In the early morning hours of June 13, 1977, after an evening thunderstorm had rolled through, young girls at a Girl Scout camp in northeastern Oklahoma heard terrifying noises throughout the night. A counselor heard what she thought was guttural moaning noises at 1.30 a.m. One girl heard a scream. Another heard someone calling out for their mother. A girl in tent six awoke to a flashlight in her face. The next morning, as a young counselor rose early at 6 a.m. to get the first shower, she discovered a horror. First one, then two, then three young girls, brutalized and murdered. And in a case that remains unsolved today, the families of Michelle Gousset, Lori Farmer, and Denise Milner have yet to receive the justice that they seek. Welcome to Margs and Mayhem, where I tell you a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, make sure you are of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. All right, folks, so I know why you're here. Generally speaking, true crime unites us. But even sometimes a case can be a little, well, much. That, my friends, is this case. Even as I was researching, I was continually debating whether or not I should even cover it. But really, the reason I landed on deciding to cover this case is because even though it's been a very long time, the case remains unsolved. Maybe someone by some miracle who hears this or watches it might come forward with a clue that solves the case after all these years. That for me means we have to do it. That being said, if you are sensitive to crimes involving children, you might want to go ahead and skip this episode. Come back next week though, because we are lightening things up considerably. The reason that I decided to do a drink for this episode is because, well, you're going to need it. Actually, you're going to need several. This is why we drink. The Thin Mint is one of my favorite Girl Scout cookies, and I'm sure it's one of yours too. They are the best-selling Girl Scout cookie of all time, you know. They've been around since 1939, having a variety of names before settling on the one that we know and love. For today's drink, we're going to do my version of a Thin Mint margarita. Now, I have learned my lesson about mixing lime and chocolate, so I sort of went about it a different way for today's drink. The chocolate will be very faint, but based on my arbitrary rules that nobody gave me, a margarita has to include lime juice and tequila. And so lime juice comes before chocolate. So we'll see if you like it. This drink required a bit of prep work. We made a mint simple syrup by combining a cup of fresh mint and a cup of sugar and a cup of water. I cooked that on medium heat for about four minutes and then strained most of the mint leaves out after it had cooled, but left a few for a stronger flavor. I'll mix one part of the simple syrup, one part tequila, one part triple sec, and a half part lime juice into a shaker, then shake and strain over fresh ice. For the rim of the drink, I combined equal parts sugar and cocoa. See, we're just doing a touch of chocolate so as to make this drink drinkable. I'm learning. Do yourself a favor and make a triple. I'll do drink warnings on this episode. You're going to need them. So take a deep breath and here we go. Located in Locust Grove, Oklahoma, 
about 45 minutes straight east of Tulsa, Camp Scott was built in 1928 and had space for 130 campers and 40 counselors on its sprawling 410 acres. The land was filled with dense woods and is generally much more isolated than the rest of Oklahoma. During their time at camp, girls would participate in a variety of activities, from archery to bird watching to leadership skills, all while making friends and enjoying the serenity of nature for 10 days. Camp Scott had 10 separate campsites named for different indigenous tribes in the United States, and they were all located along a central trail known as the Cookie Trail. Each campsite had seven tents for campers and one tent for counselors. More on that terrible decision later. The tents were 12 feet by 14 feet, large enough to house four people, and were placed on wooden platforms. The tents were arranged in a horseshoe shape, and each campsite also had its own kitchen slash storage shed slash shower facility, fire pit, and a latrine. Because of the dense terrain, each of the campsites was arranged a little bit differently and were not evenly spaced along the cookie trail. In April, two months before the camp season was set to begin, counselors went to Camp Scott for a weekend training session. During the session, a 15-year-old counselor in training came back to her campsite to find an absolutely horrifying sight in her tent. Several pieces of her luggage had been thrown out of her tent, and her luggage that was still inside the tent was strewn about. A box of donuts that had been brought for the counselors had been eaten, and inside a notebook in the tent, several threatening messages were scrawled across the first few pages of the notebook. They said, according to this counselor in training, kill, kill, kill. Another note in all caps said, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one, end quote. Some reports said that that may have been a prank but really who knows, and a camp director threw away the notes, so I guess we'll never know. On Sunday, June 12th, 1977, 130 girls boarded a bus at the Tulsa headquarters of the Magic Empire Council of the Girl Scouts. They were heading for Camp Scott. Three of the girls that got on the bus on that warm June day were eight-year-old Lori Farmer, nine-year-old Michelle Gousset, and 10-year-old Denise Milner. Lori Lee Farmer was born on June 18, 1968 in Little Rock, Arkansas. Her parents were Sherry and Dr. Bo Charles. Lori was the oldest of five children, but was only eight years old. Bright and mature for her age, Lori had actually skipped the second grade. She was looking forward to starting fifth grade in the fall and was really excited to go to camp. Her mom, Sherry, had encouraged her to go to camp. But when Lori was waffling on the decision between going to Camp Scott or going to a local YMCA for a day camp, her mom Sherry actually chose the Girl Scout camp for Lori. Adding to Lori's excitement for her new summer plans was the fact that she would be turning nine years old on the first Tuesday of camp, and her parents had said that they would come to camp to visit her on that day. Michelle Heather Gousset was born on July 22, 1967, in Miami, Oklahoma. In the summer of 1977, she lived in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, 
with her older brother Michael and her parents, Richard and Georgianne. She was athletic and active. It was her second summer at Camp Scott. She was a burgeoning gardener and was especially concerned that her parents help her take care of her prized African violets while she was away at camp. Doris Denise Milner was born on February 6, 1967 to Betty and Walter Milner. She went by Denise and had a five-year-old little sister. She was a straight-A student and had recently been accepted to Carver Magnet Middle School. This was her first trip to Camp Scott and she had sold Girl Scout cookies to pay her way on the trip. Denise started having some increasing anxiety in the days and weeks leading up to camp. She had several friends that were gonna come to camp with her, but they had pulled out at the last minute, and so Denise herself decided that she wasn't going to go. Denise's mom convinced her to go and give it a try. She thought it would make Denise more independent, and she told Denise that if anything happened, she would come and pick her up. As Michelle Hoffman, a 15-year-old counselor in training, boarded the bus to Camp Scott, she noticed a little distraught girl named Denise. Denise caught Michelle's attention, not only because she seemed pretty anxious to go to camp, but that she was one of the few black girls on the trip. Michelle assured Denise that she was going to have the time of her life, and also that she could call her mom anytime she wanted to. Michelle sat next to Denise on the 45-minute trip to camp, telling her all about all the fun she was going to have. Little Michelle, Lori, and Denise were assigned to the Kiowa campsite, and specifically to Tent 7. The tents were arranged in a horseshoe shape, and Tent 7 was on the other side of the horseshoe, the farthest away from the counselor's tent. And thanks to the thick trees and actually the kitchen building, the tent actually was obstructed from view of the counselor's tent. Tent 7 was a full 86 yards from the counselor's tent. Kiowa was the campsite that was the furthest west and the furthest isolated from the rest of the camp. There were 27 Kiowa girls and three counselors, ranging in age from 18 to 20. Another little girl was actually assigned to be in tent seven, but because of a clerical error, she ended up at another campsite. Talk about a lucky break. Though the girls were strangers before arriving at camp, as usually happens at summer camp, by the end of the first day, they were fast friends. Another counselor noted that their tent was just as lively and excited as the other tents before bed. The summer of 1977 had been a hot one, but that night had just been racked with thunderstorms. The girls had actually been sent to their tents to go to bed early because there wasn't much else to do, and the counselor suggested that they write letters home. Michelle wrote to her aunt Karen, briefly describing the camp and the new friends that she had made. Lori wrote to her mom, dad, and all four siblings. She explained that the reason she was writing was that it was raining and there was nothing else to do. Denise, heartbreakingly, wrote her mother to say that she was not having a good time and that she wanted to come home. It was the first night of camp, which undoubtedly led to excited girls struggling to go to bed. But one of the counselors made rounds around 10 o'clock and determined that all was well. Around midnight, another counselor took some girls to the latrine. Tent 6 was still awake at 1.30 a.m. And so after the counselor went and told them to be quiet, that was when she heard those 
guttural moaning sounds coming from the woods. She would later not really be able to tell if it was human or animal. It just was strange. She actually shined her flashlight into the dark, but didn't see anything strange, so went back to bed. Although she would report she did continue to hear the sound intermittently throughout the night. Around 3 a.m., two different Girl Scouts were awakened by screams. One just heard a scream, and another one heard someone calling out for their mom. And at some point, a girl was awoken in tent six by a man with a flashlight who simply pointed it in and then left. Oh, if you haven't already, drinking alert. I'm very sorry about what happens next. The next morning, the girls counselor first came upon a body about 150 yards from their tent. The body was naked from the waist down and was laying face up on her sleeping bag. The other counselors quickly instituted a search and discovered that all the girls were missing from tent seven. The nurse arrived and determined that the girl had massive head injuries and her hands were tied behind her back. She was, she was dead. The other two girls were quickly discovered with no signs of life inside their sleeping bags. Once officials arrived, they apprised the scene. It was pretty clear, even from early on, that this attack was planned and premeditated. The perpetrator had brought nylon rope, duct tape, and a pre-sewn gag that he used on one of the girls. There was a sized nine and a half blood print in the tent, which officials surmised he had entered from the back. Drink, 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 please. Okay. Two of the girls had been bludgeoned to death inside the tent and then sexually assaulted. The girl found on top of her sleeping bag had been led out of the tent, gagged, then beaten, then assaulted. She had also been strangled. Okay, we're done. That's why I told you to make it a triple. The investigation would conclude that the rope and the duct tape had been stolen from a farm about a mile down the road. More than one weapon had been used in the murders, or at the very least, the killer or killers had used both of their hands, left and right, in at least one of the attacks, making it not clear what the attacker's dominant hand was. The weapons were never recovered. A red flashlight was found on the scene with a fingerprint on the lens, but that fingerprint could never be used for identification purposes. None of the remaining girls were made known of what happened to their campmates. They were told to quickly pack and they were put back on the bus and sent to Tulsa to their frenzied families who did not know what had happened, but knew that they needed to pick their children up. Parents waited for hours to get their children off the bus in Tulsa. And even though they had been told that their children were uninjured and the parents of the injured children had already been notified, many were inconsolable until they saw their daughter come out of the bus. The families of Denise, Lori, and Michelle were told that they had died in a tragic accident. It wasn't until the media began reporting on the murders that their family actually found out what had happened. The Cookson Hills, where Camp Scott is located, is, as I mentioned before, densely wooded and significantly isolated. Fugitives were known to have made their way there after escaping jail or prison because you could easily live in those woods without being detected for a long time. Ten days into the investigation, law enforcement announced that they had their suspect, a fugitive they believed was living in the Cookson Hills. 
Jean Leroy Hart was a 34-year-old Cherokee man. He was 5'10 and weighed nearly 200 pounds. In 1966, when he was 23, Jean had actually kidnapped and assaulted two pregnant women. And during the attack, he made incoherent growling noises. He also used rope and duct tape in the attack. Both of the women had been wearing glasses and Jean tried on both glasses at some point during the attacks. He had taped their mouths and noses shut, I assume in an attempt to murder them, but they were able to break free of their bindings. In October of 1966, Jean was convicted of kidnapping, rape, and four other counts of burglary and was sentenced to essentially a life sentence. But in 1973, he had escaped from the Mays County Jail by cutting through the bars on the windows, and he'd been on the lam ever since. Investigators suspected Gene from the very beginning. His childhood home was very close to where Camp Scott was located. A cave several yards from what remained of his childhood home was a treasure trove of evidence. There was duct tape that matched the duct tape at the scene. There was a pair of women's eyeglasses stolen from a counselor at Camp Scott. There was a flashlight battery and three photographs of women that were linked to Jean. There was also a torn newspaper. The other part of that torn newspaper was found in the red flashlight, kind of jammed in there to restore a loose connection between the battery and the flashlight. Another cave nearby had the following written on the wall, quote, the killer was here, bye-bye fools, 77-6-17, end quote. It's a weird way to write a date, unless you have some experience with the military or being in prison. By the end of June, the DA had already brought charges against Gene, but it would take a 10-month manhunt to find him. When he was finally located, he was in a neighboring county to the county where Camp Scott is located. This manhunt would cost over a million dollars in today's money. When Gene was caught, he was wearing women's eyeglasses. When the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations handcuffed Gene, he asked if he'd committed the crime. And Gene said, quote, you'll never pin it on me, end quote. Sounds like an innocent man, definitely. It's just wise to just drink throughout this episode. Just nothing in particular coming up, just it's probably helpful anyway. The trial ensued, much to the rapture of people across the United States. The judge didn't allow evidence from Gene's prior crimes as he ruled it would be too prejudicial. After the prosecution outlined the evidence in their case, the defense systematically dismantled each part of it. They would argue that Gene had had a vasectomy, so he couldn't have left sperm evidence at the scene. They also argued that he wore a size 11 shoe, much too big for the size nine and a half boot print. The crux of their case was that evidence had actually just been planted left and right so that they could convict Gene of the crime. After deliberating for only six hours, the jury returned a verdict, not guilty. Gene was not off the hook, however. He headed straight back to jail, not passing go, not collecting $200, 
for his previous crimes. Remember, he was an escaped convict. On June 4th, 1979, Jean Leroy Hart died of a massive heart attack about an hour after lifting weights and running around the exercise yard. He was 35 years old. Other potential suspects have been identified throughout the decades, but none ever had enough evidence to warrant charges or a trial. One of these suspects, who the defense actually decided to pin the crime on, was a convicted rapist from Kansas named William Stevens. William had actually been seen on the grounds of Camp Scott just a few days before the murders by one of the campers. Allegedly, I guess. In 1985, a $5 million lawsuit was brought on behalf of Denise and Lori's parents against the Girl Scouts. They alleged that the camp was grossly negligent in its safety measures, or lack thereof. The attorneys argued that the camp should have had security fences, much more lighting, and armed patrols. The defense, basically their entire case was that a verdict for the families would end camping as a whole. Dramatic much? Evidently, the defense was pretty persuasive. After deliberating for five hours and by a vote of nine to three, the jury ruled in favor of the Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts Insurance Company. The family would also lose an appeal a year later. So what do you think? Did the jury get it wrong? Was Jean Leroy Hart actually responsible for the murders of the three Girl Scouts? Or was he framed, as the defense argued, perhaps because he was indigenous? Was there more than one person responsible, especially because of that evidence that more than one hand was wielding a weapon? Was the camp liable for what happened to the girls, or was it just a tragic accident? What mistakes were made at the summer camp? that if they hadn't been made, might have prevented this tragedy. Should the Girl Scouts have been held liable for what happened to those girls? Or, as their lawyers argued, would it have destroyed camp forever? Michelle's father, Richard, worked tirelessly to ensure the Oklahoma State Legislature would pass the Oklahoma Crime Victims' Bill of Rights shortly after the murders. The law includes 18 separate things that victims have a right to, including, among other things, access to social services, financial compensation, and if needed, law enforcement protection. Former Muskogee County attorney Mike Turpin said, quote, I believe that Richard Gousset was the single most important catalyst in passing the bill, which has become the model for the rest of the nation, end quote. Richard and Georgian's anniversary was one day after the murders, and it's a holiday they no longer celebrate. Bo and Sherry Farmer, Lori's parents, founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, a support group, which they also led for 15 years. On the 40th anniversary of the murders in 2017, Lori's younger sister, Misty, said, quote, I have faith that there will be some answers that somebody will come forward with something, end quote. After nearly 50 years in existence, Camp Scott closed immediately after the murders and never reopened as a summer camp. The Magic Empire Council of the Girl Scouts sold the location in 1988 to a private owner. And even today, some of the buildings do remain standing, but they're abandoned. 
Throughout the years since the murders, DNA testing has proved inconclusive at best. In 1989, early DNA profiling indicated that three of the five probes, they call them, matched Jean Leroy Hart's DNA. Statistically, DNA from one in 7,700 indigenous Americans would yield the same result. In 2008, DNA was attempted to be tested from a pillowcase, but the sample had been too degraded to, to get a result. In 2017, Mays County Sheriff Mike Reed raised $30,000 to have samples of DNA retested. Hopefully, this will reveal a forensic profile of a killer and this case can be solved once and for all. Results from that testing have yet to be released, but if you ask me, they're gonna match Jean Leroy Hart. Thanks for hanging out with me. I hope your Thin Mint Margarita carried you through one of the most challenging cases to date. And don't worry, if this one was rough, in two weeks we head to Canada for a little bit lighter fare and an apple frozen margarita. Just a reminder that when a month has five Thursdays, we take the fifth Thursday off. Consider it your week to catch up. Hey, and make sure you head to the liquor store for the ingredients for next week's margarita. All of those description box. I'm so nice. Oh, and speaking of description box, there's some other fun links down there to all of our social media pages. Go ahead and check some of those out. If you're in need of some daily mayhem, may I recommend our Twitter? Did you know that on this day in 1989, oil tanker Exxon Valdez spilled some 11 million gallons of oil into Prince William Sound in Alaska? Woof. Talk about some environmental mayhem. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to murdering Girl Scouts. Yeah, I said it.